Welcome to Digging Deeper in Grace, a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Our goal each episode is to dig deeper into the scriptures with a focus on our most recent sermon. And now let's dig deeper. Well, hello and welcome to this week's episode. Wherever, whenever, however you're listening, it's good to have you with us again. I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, and with me today is Tim Cockrell. Tim is fresh off from the opening sermon this past Sunday in our new study in Revelation. That's chapters 1 through 3. And so, Tim, it wasn't long ago that it seemed that every conference I go to, every sermon series, it seems, seemed to be focused on the calendar of Christ's return and all the trimmings that go with that. And of course, this book of Revelation that we're in now was often at the center of those studies. And I've got to tell you, I have heard some, and I'll say they express maybe a little bit of disappointment, maybe a little bit of wonder that we aren't going to continue on into the really good parts of Revelation. Can you talk about that? Why stop at chapter three? Of course. Well, and yeah, I grew up in church where, you know, Thief in the Night and then oh, later yeah. on um, Left Behind series was all the the focus. And, and I think that maybe even points us a little bit to one of the reasons why I would say let's focus on one through three, because the the details of those last things are often what fascinate us. But as I said on Sunday, I believe this book was written not primarily to tell us when Christ was coming back, but to remind us that he is coming back. And that ought to compel us to live differently now. And so to focus our attention on one through three really helps us to remember that these were written to churches that were in circumstances that quite honestly should feel very familiar to us as we study through them. But, you know, I've had a few people ask, you know, why aren't we preaching through an entire book of the Bible? And in general, my approach in expository or verse-by-verse preaching would be to preach through an entire book. But there are certain times and certain ways that I think it's helpful to focus on some subsection of the book. So Genesis might be a good example. Genesis 1 through 11 is a very different type of literature and focus than Genesis 12 through 50. And so if you're going to preach in Genesis, I think it would be appropriate to preach just that section because of how beneficial it might be for us. In the same way you might be looking at Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, you can narrow in on that and really have a beneficial study without studying the entire book of Matthew. So it's kind of my same approach when we look at the book of Revelation, that if we focus on the things that are, as we'll see uh, outlined here in our text this coming week, that helps us to know then how we live in light of Christ's imminent return. Are you suggesting that we often, as far as the remainder of the book, chapters 4 through 22, we often look to heaven and the eternity and sometimes forget we've got work to do right now? Is that part of what you're saying? It certainly is part of what I'm saying. And I also think when we get to apocalyptic literature, which is generally what the rest of the book of Revelation is, there's lots of imagery, there's lots of mystery, but but the message really has a great deal of simplicity. And so if we were to preach through this entire book, it would probably take a year and a half or two years. But the focus of the messages in you know at least a year of that will be Jesus wins and the enemies are punished. And so as helpful as that might be, I think it could be an unbalanced diet, if you will, of, of God's word. So to focus on Revelation 1 through 3, and then in the, the winter we'll look at the book of Philippians, I do think that, that that really is a healthier balance for us as believers. 
You mentioned the type of literature, uh, apocalyptic, uh, and with the introduction that I read here in John, uh, or rather in uh, verses 4 through 8, John shares who he's writing to and so forth. Sounds an awful lot like a letter, mm-hmm. but I know I don't really think of Revelation as a letter, perhaps because of that chapters 4 through 22. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think of it as a letter like I think perhaps of the epistles of Paul or, or John or Peter or so forth. So should we consider the book of Revelation a letter, and does it really make a difference in the first place? Right. Yes would be the answer to the first question. It clearly is a letter. Jesus says, I want you to write these things down and send them to these specific churches. And so when we then look at the the seven churches, many times it said, you know, these are seven letters to the churches. If you look at it, they they don't really have the elements of a letter as much as they do a sermon. You know, so that's one of the things that was really compelling for me as I was looking at this is these are sermons from the risen Christ to his church. This is a really unique literature. And that then as he challenges them, encourages them, and reminds them, he orients them to the ultimate reality that will take place in the future as the basis for which they are to endure in the present. So maybe an analogy would be when we look at the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel is begins with the narrative of, of specific people in a specific place, but then it involves a number of visions that are given that help orient them to the circumstances that they are in. So you could say, well, is the book of Daniel you know, apocalyptic or is it narrative? Well, it's both. And that the narrative helps us to understand the purpose of the apocalyptic. And I think it's the same thing here, that it's a letter that was to be read to orient and encourage the believers in that time. And like with all epistles, I'm sure you would agree that uh, there ha- there was an immediate audience, but then there was the much greater audience that extends to today. Absolutely. And when we look at the churches, I think we will feel a lot of similarity that, yes, these are written for specific churches in a specific place and time, but the principles are so applicable to us even today. Okay, good. Well, staying here in the introduction of the letter, God's people are identified very uniquely in this opening passage. It was interesting to me that in verse 1, John identifies his people, I'll say us, as God's servants. And then in verse 6, he calls us a kingdom, a priest to Jesus as God and Father. Seems to be a pretty big leap from servants to priests, isn't it? And I have to think there's something important to discuss in those two seemingly, I won't call them opposing, but very different presentations of his people. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is the deeper we look at it, the more there actually is quite a bit of overlap here. So this word servants actually is the Greek word slaves. And so many times in translations, because of all the associations we bring to slavery, they use servants instead. But if we think back to our study of the book of Exodus, the Israelites had been serving in Egypt. And God says, I've delivered you from slavery so that you might serve me. It's the same word, that you might be my my precious possession. You belong to me because you've been purchased. And doesn't he call them in Exodus, as I recall, a kingdom? He calls them a, 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 priest, a priesthood. In Exodus 19, that you will be a holy priesthood, a kingdom. Uh, in that regard. So again, there's this overlap of we we have been bought with a price. We belong exclusively to our master. And that is his will compels us. His grace resources us to do what we've been called to do. And ultimately we're living for his approval. And the way that we do that then is by being his priest. What did priests do? They were representatives of God. Hmm. 
and that they then mediated between God and the people. So we are called, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us, to be ambassadors of Christ in his kingdom to a watching world. And so I think when we think about slavery, many times the slaves were mistreated, not necessarily by the master in that culture, although that could happen, but by those who opposed the master. Jesus told a number of parables related to that. And so I think some of the purpose of this language is to say, you believers who are experiencing persecution, it's not because you're doing something wrong, but because you're doing something right. They hated the master and therefore they hate the servants. But you are called to be these representatives, these priestly uh, ambassadors to a world that so desperately needs the message that you provide. Guilty in the world's view by association. Mm -hmm, exactly. Well, then, uh, moving on, I'm struck by a particular theme, and I've noticed this over the past three Sundays. <clears throat> First of all, we, we closed up our study of Exodus two weeks ago. We shared a one-off study of Acts chapter 4 one week ago, and then just this past Sunday, of course, opening the book of Revelation, as we're doing here. And one of the themes that our brother last week encouraged us to consider during our time in Acts was to prioritize beholding God or prioritize the beholding of God in our daily lives. Really, though, that seems to have been the theme throughout Exodus, certainly there in Acts, and now in Revelation. John seems to be presenting the very same theme. Absolutely. And I think that's something that is worth celebrating is that when we approach the Bible and, and even our relationship with God, I fear that sometimes we can approach it as kind of a religious checklist. Like, what does God want from me? He wants my obedience. He wants my money. He wants my time. He wants me to be diligent in spiritual disciplines. And all those things are true, but ultimately what he wants is our heart. What he wants is worship. And the way that we do that is by rightly orienting ourselves to who he is, by delighting and being amazed in who he is. And then once that happens, our response is not out of duty, but out of delight. And so when we look at Exodus, that's one of those places where we can think, oh, it's all about law, right? You know, he just wants us to obey. But when we understand that God called his people that he might dwell with them, that they might see his glory, that they might be reconciled in their relationship with God. And then when we look at Revelation, kind of the culmination of his plan, John catches even just a glimpse of who Christ is, and he is undone by it. That I think it's a good reminder for us that when we come into church as a, a church family, when we gather or when we have our individual time with the Lord, what he wants first and foremost is our heart. And that as we love him and know him and trust him, then our lives are transformed by that power. And so even as he is going to address the churches, he's going to say, say some hard truths for them, but he begins by orienting them to, I am the risen Christ. Mm. I am the authoritative, all-powerful, but also gracious and good, holy God. And that, that knowledge is what is to give them the encouragement to persevere in some really difficult circumstances. Tim, of course, you know this. We've talked about it in elder meetings and elder gatherings. Uh, it's been a real focus of the elders over the past, especially the past couple of years, and it's always been here at Grace, mm -hmm. but to focus on the real issue, and that is the shed blood of Christ wherever we're preaching from, wherever we're teaching from. Mm -hmm. And we've seen it throughout Exodus, the, certainly the Passover, certainly the uh, Moses is a type of Christ rescuing, delivering his children mm -hmm. from sin. Acts, 
the church there, the new church, is responding to the shed blood. Mm -hmm. And of course, Jesus has risen again. He's ascended. And then here in Revelation, let me just read here in verse 6. To him who loves us and has set us free, this is the end of uh, mm -hmm. verse 5, to whom he has loved us and set us free from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Here we have again the blood. The gospel is presented here throughout these past three weeks and really throughout the past, you know, past half of a year that we've been studying Exodus, now Acts, or then Acts, and now Revelation. Yeah, I think when we think about John being probably around 90 years old at this point, probably 60 years-ish after Jesus has ascended into heaven, it's remarkable to me that some of the first words on his lips to these persecuted believers is, don't forget the gospel. God loves you. Christ died for you. He has set you free from sin's penalty as well as its power. He's called and he's commissioned you with this message. And then he just bursts out into spontaneous praise because he can't help as he reflects on the truth of the gospel and as he responds to the grace of the gospel to just be amazed by it. And I think that's one of the reasons why we want to integrate it into our regular preaching as well as our service to constantly come back to the gospel is because that orients everything else about the Christian life for us. And reminding ourselves, too, that this is not some guy two, three, 20 centuries after Christ. This is a guy who, as we believe, laid his head upon Jesus' breast at the Passover, the Last Supper. He's a guy who, you mentioned it on Sunday, we believe he's the one who identifies himself as the one whom Jesus loved. Mm -hmm. He walked with Jesus. He saw it. And he, you know, he's there at Trans Mountain of Transfiguration, mm -hmm. one of the three closest associates of Jesus. We can trust a faithful witness. Absolutely. And the thing that makes that that much more remarkable is he did. He laid his head against Jesus' chest at the Last Supper. He saw the glory of Jesus at the Transfiguration. He encountered the risen Christ. He saw the empty tomb. But when he sees this vision of the risen Christ, he is like a dead man. He is so overcome by the glory and splendor and magnificence of Christ. And that testimony is that much more than compelling as he himself is suffering for Christ on the Isle of Patmos saying, it's worth it. Knowing Christ and being faithful to him, no matter what it costs us in this life is worth it. It's just really compelling. I don't want to go too deep into other languages, Greek or whatever. You're much more able to do that than I am. But I think it's important as we look at even this word revelation. Mm -hmm. There's a word that goes that is the Greek word that is translated as revelation. When we think of apocalyptic literature, and that's what the word that's what mm -hmm. I'm saying, uh, apocalypso, mm -hmm. we we think of great. Uh, upheaval, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But that's not what apocalypse means in this in the Greek language. It means the revealing revelation. Yes. Can you talk about that? This revelation, what is what is really being revealed? Yep, I think verse one makes it very clear that it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so I like the term unveiling because there are many things that are concealed from us that we just don't know. Mystery. Exactly, that we don't know, we can't understand. We think about the Old Testament believers, there was even more that they didn't understand. But slowly and progressively, and at times dramatically, that curtain is pulled back. 
to give a glimpse of who God is, what his plan is. Certainly that was done when Jesus came, that we, we get a glimpse of, oh, this is what salvation is going to look like. And so in this book, we see an unveiling of the risen Christ and his authority to rule and reign as king and to come as the judge. And that that then changes the way that we live. And so the primary idea of this unveiling is not a detailed description of everything that's going to happen in the final days, but rather a reminder that Christ is the king and the judge who will deliver his people and judge his enemies. And that changes the way that we live today. We ought to live with a sense of holy anticipation, a gospel urgency that ought to be there. And so when we think about that, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ by Jesus Christ, it's pretty clear where the focus needs to be. And that's what we're seeking to do as we go through this series. We've got a whole litany of, uh, shall we call them characters. We've got Jesus Christ being sent by God to deliver the message about himself through the angel mm-hmm. who came to John to deliver to his servants. Yep. Uh, if I count five characters in there, groups of characters. And uh, just a fascinating, though, when I think of that whole idea of apocalypse, again, i got to reorient my mind because the world tells us that really one thing is just a revealing mm-hmm. of, of Christ. Very good. Every teacher who's worth his salt, <laughs> he, he has an idea laid out from the very beginning of what the goals of his class is going to be, if you will. What are your objectives for the church as we read through and study these first three chapters of Revelation? Well, I'm not terribly creative. I'll say my objectives <laughs> are are probably the same as what I see the objectives of Christ are in these letters or sermons to the churches, because there's a very consistent theme. The first one is worship. Every letter begins with a vision of the risen Christ, some aspect or attribute that he calls attention to, that orients the believers to who he is, who they are, and how they ought to respond. Every letter also, most letters I should say, has some amount of encouragement to say, persevere, remember who Jesus is, and that it will be worth it as we endure the brokenness of this world. But that there's also confrontation and challenge that there's some aspect of our lives that we ought to be broken over, whether that's a hardness of heart that we've forsaken the love that we had at first, or whether it's a a sense of compromise with our culture that we've given in rather than giving up. But that if we do that, if we orient ourselves to who God is in worship, if we encourage ourselves with what he's revealed about Christ, and then we repent of the sinful tendencies, I think we will continue to prepare ourselves to be ready so that whenever Christ returns, we are found faithful. I've read ahead. I've read those seven letters, and I am pretty sure there's something in each of those seven for Grace Baptist Church, and specifically for me. Mm -hmm. I'm confident there is, And, and for churches around the world. You know, when we read about churches that are suffering, we might view little glimpses of that here in our nation. But when we look at the church worldwide, we see that many churches are suffering the same level of intensity of persecution as those believers were. And those are our brothers and sisters. And so we want to stand with them, even as we recognize that may not be far off in the horizon here in our nation as well. And my prayer for myself, Tim, I'll be, just be very open with you, is that God would, uh, they, I would approach these coming sermons with a humble heart. Mm. God, what do you have for me here? Mm -hmm. And strip away, strip away anything that is not of you. Mm -hmm. That's a great prayer. It should be true of all of us. 
hey, help us prepare for next week's lesson. Absolutely. Well, a great way to do it is just reading the passage. We're going to be in Revelation 1, verses 9 through 20. Uh, again, this is primarily a vision of the risen Christ that might be a little confusing for us because of the amount of imagery and symbolism that's represented there. But I think the main thing I would reflect on is John is writing to these persecuted believers. They're hurting, they're suffering, they're weary and, and disheartened. And what Jesus says first is he gives them a vision of his authority, of his power. What is it about this vision that ought to encourage and orient them and therefore for us as well? Because this isn't just given for kind of uh, theological pyrotechnics to impress and amaze, right. but it's to, to transform us. And so what was that for for them and, and what is it for for us as well? Great. Hey, thanks for your work. Looking forward to the coming weeks as we study Revelations 1 through 3. Thanks, Bart. Well, Tim Cockrell has been my guest for this week's episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. We've been discussing his introductory sermon in our new series, A Study of the Book of Revelation in Chapters 1 through 3. And you can access Grace sermons and podcast episodes on demand by visiting gracecedarville.org on the World Wide Web and clicking the Media tab. We also encourage you to share your questions and comments with us each week by emailing them to contact at gracecedarville.org. That's contact at gracecedarville.org. And plan to join us next week. We'll continue our discussion of God's Word, as Tim has mentioned, as we move into the remainder of Revelation chapter 1. Until we meet again, I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, thanking you for tuning into this week's episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. Digging Deeper in Grace is a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Visit us online at gracecedarville.org and join us next time as we continue our discussion. In the meantime, we invite you to continue digging deeper in grace as you read God's Word.